Let's stand and let's pray before we get into God's word. Lord Jesus, as we open up your word, I pray that you would speak to us, God. I pray that you would speak to us and we would hear from you, each and every one of us. Lord, that we would not leave this place changed, that we would catch a glimpse of who you are more and more. Lord, we need you, and we ask this all in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I'm sure we all know this, but our brains are, in a sense, could be uh, said that they are comparison machines. We're constantly, constantly comparing everything. In fact, even subconsciously, you know, every so many milliseconds, everything we're seeing, we are comparing it with what we think it is, right? That's why sometimes, you ever had that where you're walking around and you see, you know, you thought you saw something out of the corner of your eye, right? And then you turn around and you look and it's actually something else, right? We all had that happen. That's your brain using what limited information you have, your peripheral vision, and, and it thinks, oh, that's a cat. And then you look over and it's, a, I don't know, the car seat I put outside by my car, right? So your brain is constantly doing this comparison and not just, you know, for example, this, everyone's like looking at this, right? We, we realize they look like they're different colors, right? One's white, the other one's black, but they're actually the same color, because we're comparing them with the blocks that are, are surrounding them, right? Or if we go to the next slide, and there's so many of these obstacle illusions. If we can go to the next slide, guys, we need the video guys to be on top of it. There you go. So what color are the strawberries? Red, right? Well, actually, if you zoom in and you look at the actual pixels, there is not a single red pixel there. there it's either gray or green. But why does it look red? Because, well, we know strawberries are red, right? And because we look at all the surrounding green, and that gray all of a sudden looks red to us. We're constantly comparing, and God has designed our minds to work this way. And if we study the Gospel of John and the letters of John, what we will find is John is one of these like comparison machines. He's just constantly comparing everything he sees. It's, it's his favorite way of thinking. It's his favorite way of communicating. And if you don't have your Bibles open, open them up already to John 3 and 4. Have that open because we're going to be looking all over both of those chapters. But you'll notice, you know, John talks about the light, and then he talks about darkness. He talks about death, and he talks about life. He talks about God and the world. He compares the flesh with the spirit. And if you put that comparison lens on and you read the Gospel of John, you'll be blown away at how often he's comparing all these ideas together. So today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about two people, Nico and Sam. Nico and Sam. And John tries really hard to compare them together. Nico, or Nicodemus, that's his real name, he was the ruler of the Jews, and we read about him in John 3. He was a male, he was a teacher, he was, uh, he was wealthy, he was established. Sam, on the other hand, she was a nobody. She was a Samaritan 
The Jews hated the Samaritans, right? Just like liberals hate conservatives, conservatives hate liberals, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were considered the liberals, the morally corrupt people, those who mixed with Gentile sinners, right? John 8, 48, we see the Jews telling Jesus, you know, they said, you are a Samaritan and have a demon, like, that was, that was the greatest form of insult that they can insult someone with. You're a Samaritan. You've got a demon, right? Those are the same to them. But not only was she a Samaritan, she was a woman, right? In fact, the disciples were so shocked to see Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman that they couldn't understand, why are you talking to her? Because women did not have equal standing with men in society at that time. Most women were illiterate, they were not educated, and unlike the teacher, you know, Nicodemus, he was very well educated, women could not testify in court as a witness. Their, their testimony was not valid even, right? It didn't even count for anything. But not only was Sam a Samaritan woman, she was the worst of Samaritan women, Let's just say she was one that did not have the highest moral standards. She had five husbands. Five husbands. Think about that. And the man she was with at that time in her life wasn't even her husband. She gave up on that whole idea of marriage. She was living with him. John could not have picked out two Israelites that were more different from one another. Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, and he places them right next to one another. John 3, John 4. What John is trying to do is he's trying to teach us something about Jesus, about the way that he interacted with these two people. First of all, we read in John 3 that when did Nicodemus come to Jesus? In the beginning of John 3, you could see it. Anyone want to guess? When did he come? By night. Very symbolic. He came by night in the shroud of secrecy. When did the Samaritan woman come to Jesus? In the day. What time of day? What hour? 12 p.m. It could not be more polar opposite, right? The darkest time of the day, Nicodemus comes. The brightest time of the day, the Samaritan woman comes. What John is saying is the difference is night and day, literally, right? And all of this is to build up to the fact that Nicodemus did not end up believing in Jesus then and there. And we read that, actually. And, and we think that he actually ended up believing eventually. But here in John 3, he was not believing because Jesus tells him in verse 11, read with me, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus did not believe, whereas the Samaritan woman did believe, and she didn't just believe. She went and she told the entire town about Jesus, and they came and they saw and they believed in our Lord. The first thing that I want to really highlight tonight today in today's passage or message is the grace. Church, just pay attention to the grace that God showed to Sam. 
Sam was a woman who had made many, many mistakes throughout the course of her life. Mistakes for which she was paying for every single day. She was both a sufferer and a sinner, just like all of us. She got herself into a very deep hole, and she was too ashamed to have other women see her. That's why she came at the hottest part of the day, 12 p.m. She didn't come in the morning when all the other women usually went while it was still cool. She went the hottest part so no one would see her because she didn't want to make eye contact with any of the other women in her village. And Jesus finds her, the one that is at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of society the outcast, the reject, the one that we would see today, and I'm sure we all have people like this that we know, and we're like, man, there's no hope for this person. Sam was that woman. She was the woman with no hope. And Jesus finds her, and he saves her, and he reveals himself to her, and he gives her grace. She discovers who Jesus really is, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. And she goes and tells the whole town about Jesus. And through her, many more come to know Christ. Friends, church, I want to remind all of us about the love of Jesus Christ. Just take it in. That there is no one beyond the saving grace of Jesus. He loves us and he wants to save us. Yes, people might despise us. Yes, people might look down upon us, judge us. But he still finds us in our shame. He finds us wherever it is that we are trying to hide, and he gives us grace. This is the nature of Jesus Christ. This is who he is. In fact, the amount of grace that he offers us is so much that the transformation of the heart is so drastic that we can now go from hiding to going into the town square and telling everyone else, hey, go see him. Is this the Messiah? Is this the Savior of the world? You see how drastic that change is? No longer worried about what they're going to think about me, that they're going to judge me. That woman, after she met Jesus, she was no longer a slave to her past. She was no longer a slave to her past five failed marriages. She was no longer a slave to her sinful relationship with that man that she was living with. She was no longer a slave to the opinions of that entire town. The Son of God had set her free. The beauty and the goodness and the love and the grace of Jesus. He loves saving sinners those who are helpless and hopeless. He isn't looking for someone who first gets their life together, right? All good, like Nicodemus, and then comes to him. Now he meets us as we are walking to the well of shame. He meets us at the well of temporary satisfaction. The well that will leave us shortly thereafter. That's where Jesus meets us, church. Church. 
Friends, if you haven't met Jesus yet, you can do it. He is here. He is reaching out to you. He is calling to you. Respond to him. Friends, church, accept what he's offering. We'd love to stop the service right now just to pray with you. It's true. It's the most important thing that you could do is just repent and cry out to him, and we will rejoice with you. It's the most important thing. Come to Jesus. So we've highlighted his grace, and we've mentioned this before, but look at Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. He was the one that was supposed to be teaching Israel about God, right? He was the one that was supposed to be pointing to God. But instead, we see a lowly, immoral, illiterate outcast doing Nicodemus's job for him while he is hiding in the shadows. You know what a very practical application from this is? That none of us are too unskilled or unqualified or uneducated to point people to Jesus. There is no one. If you have met Jesus, you are qualified to point people to Jesus. We call this series Come and See, right? This is literally a text straight out of John 1, right? Come and see. Come and see Jesus. All of us can come to people and say, come and see Jesus, right? We don't need to have all the answers, church. We don't need to know all the doctrines to be able to point at Jesus the way that the Samaritan woman did right after God saved her. She didn't go and get a seminary degree and then told people about Jesus. No, she right away went and told the whole town. Sometimes we forget, church, don't we, that we are not the ones that save people. We're not. Who saves people, church? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that saves people. We just need to say, hey, come and see. Go look at Jesus. Consider Jesus. And he takes care of the rest. So that's Sam and Nicodemus. But the, the bigger comparison that John is making, not just in these two chapters, but the entire gospel is the comparison of unbelief with belief. In fact, the whole purpose of the gospel could be summed up here, of gospel of John, is in John 20, 31. John says, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In fact, the word believe or you know, a variation of it, appears in the Gospel of John 85 times. 85 times. The next runner-up is the Gospel of Mark, and it mentions the word believe less than 20 times. And then Matthew and Luke each say, mention the word believe less than 10 times. So John is really like he's emphasizing, he's repeating himself, believe, believe, unbelieve, believe, right? He's constantly repeating himself. And ultimately we see that Nicodemus likely did believe, but in John 3, he is the image, the symbol of unbelief. He's representing unbelief. And so the first thing I want to look at is this, 
the, the darkness, which is the reason for unbelief. Jesus tells us exactly why people do not believe. John 3, 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, church, we, apart from the grace of God, we have a love affair with sin. And light exposes our sin, and we understand that. Everyone understands that. And we don't want to give up our sin, right, apart from the grace of God. And that's why it says that everyone who does wicked things hates the light. So instead of choosing the path of truth, the path of light, we choose a lie, right? We choose a path that allows us to continue to enjoy our sin and to live in it. That's what every human does apart from the grace of God. Romans 1.18 says the same thing, but just in, a, in different words. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So it's not that we don't know the truth. We suppress it because of our own unrighteousness. People don't believe in God and Jesus and Christianity not because there is not enough information, not because no one's explained it well enough. The deepest reason why people do not believe is because we love sin. That's the real answer. We love sin. And instead of letting go of our unrighteousness, we choose to keep it and to suppress the truth instead. We choose to hate the light. We choose to stay away from the light instead of remaining, and instead to remain in darkness. Instead of facing how dirty and evil we are, we choose to stay away from Jesus, the true light, because we know that he will end up exposing us. And we understand that when we're exposed, you can't keep doing what you've been doing, right? You've been exposed. Your cover is blown. The reason people don't believe in Jesus is the same reason the thief can't seem to find the police officer, right? He's looking everywhere, and he just can't seem to find the police officer because he has an internal motivation to not find the police officer because he knows the moment he finds the police officer, his life of crime is over. His life will change permanently after that. He's not going to be able to get free stuff anymore, right? And he likes that. He's used to not paying for stuff. He likes free stuff. But you see, there's a deep problem with this approach. Yes, remaining in darkness allows us to enjoy the benefits of sin. But by being in darkness, we don't just lie to others around us. We first and foremost lie to our own selves. Yes, in the darkness, no one can see how filthy and dirty I am. Yes, that's true. I don't need to be embarrassed. But walking in the darkness is how we trip. John 11.10 says, If anyone walks in the night, it's just a couple of chapters over, 
Jesus says he stumbles because the light is not in him. I remember one time we were backpacking, uh, and it was, a, it was a fork of the American River, and we went down there, and then we river rafted a couple of miles down, and we were river rafting, so all we took with ourselves was some granola bars and the river rafts and our clothes. That was it. No phones, no nothing, right? And we went a couple of miles. We are exhausted. We get to the end. We're resting, we're on the rocks, we're drying up, about to head back, and then we look over and we see and there's, a, there's like a, a, you know, we thought it was a cave at first, but it was actually a mining shaft that goes into the side of the mountain. We're like, oh, this is so cool, right? We run in there and there's like a hundred billion mosquitoes, right? But you get past those and there's none there. And we run in there and, and it's, it was deep. I forget how many feet, maybe from here to, to that wall, right? So you go, you go all the way down there and there's a room. And so we all crowd in there like, oh, this is so cool. And it felt like you're in a refrigerator, right? It's really cold in there. And so we're, we're talking, making echoes, laughing, everything. And then, you know, a couple of people start leaving. And we're like, hey, let's, like, look around the room again, see if it really is a dead end. So we go around and start looking. And we're about to, like, yeah, it's a dead end. And then, ooh, oh, it keeps going. Oh, and, and it just, oh, it's going. Hey, let's check it out. Let's see how deep it goes. So... Me and a couple other guys start crawling, right? into. So it's a 90-degree turn, just a sharp right turn. And we start crawling into this mountain, right? And you're crawling. And, you know, a couple of feet in, you crawl in, and it is so pitch dark. Like, you could be waving your hand in front of your face, and you don't see it at all. There's not a single photon of light down there, right? It's extremely dark. And you're crawling, you know, it's like moist, like, I don't know what's, what's here, you know, and, and I'm, I'm paranoid, like, what if there's a cliff, right? And so, you're, you know, you're just, you're feeling your way through, very dumb, I wouldn't do that now, but we, we were doing that, right, and we're going, and we're like, uh, and it just keeps going and going and going, right? There's no end in sight, and we're like, we should probably just turn around, right? And so we turn around, and by God's grace, we, we get out, none of us fall down, but like, it's so easy for there to have been, like, a cliff or a drop, right? And just because I'm being careful in the dark and, you know, I could see it and I could feel, oh, there's a cliff, there's just no guarantee that when I get to the edge of that cliff that it's not going to just, like, break off and just fall down, right? And it's just guaranteed death. But that's what it is. When you walk in the darkness, it is only a matter of time. Jesus says, he who walks in the dark stumbles. Yes, the darkness provides a place to hide, but the darkness is ultimately deadly, church. It is deadly. And Jesus is the true light. Another practical application from this text. Is there something in your life, is there a room in your house where you have the lights off? where you're walking around in darkness, that you're hiding from the light. You're not letting the light enter into that part of your life, into that part of your heart, that part of your house. Church, you've got to turn the lights on. It's, you have to bring it into the light. It's scary to think about how the light is going to expose that room and the, the mess, right, that's in that room, the dirt, the filth. But you have to turn the lights on Yes, the light will expose us, but the dark is actually the scarier place to be. Come to Jesus. Walk into his light. Confess your sins. Live in that light. It's better to come into the light now 
then it's better to be exposed by your choice now than to be exposed on the last day not by your choice, but by the choice of the one who will judge you. It is far better. Either way, all will be exposed, church, everything. It is only a matter of time. Also, another practical application of this The truth is that people hate the light. And we have to understand that when we evangelize, when we tell other people about Jesus. That means that the the root issue of unbelief is not just a lack of information. It's not like, well, if I told him this way or that way and I explained it better and I answered all his questions, then he would believe in Jesus. No, it's not true. It's not enough to just present convincing evidence Because ultimately, the key problem is that people are in love with their sin. I remember one time we were sitting in a Starbucks by Sac State. This is years and years ago, and we were planning something for youth. I forgot what it was, but it was our team. And we're sitting, and we're just really excited about, like, the event or the series or whatever it is that we were planning. We're we're talking, and we're bouncing ideas off one another, this and that. You know, we're going, and we're not being loud, but, you know, people could see it's very lively. And so, and this one older gentleman comes up, and he's like... Probably in his 60s, right? He's like, hey, what are, you, what are you guys doing? Like, you guys got some, like, some startup or some business that you guys are doing or this and that? And we're like, um, well, actually, we're planning something for our church, you know? And I could see his, like, face go from, like, smile to, like, mm. oh, you know? Just c- completely disappointed. And uh, he's like, well... Yeah, um, as a scientist, uh, I'm actually an atheist, you know, and he starts telling us, you know, about this and that. And, and, and we start talking with him. We, we actually have a really good conversation with him. We have a dialogue, and we probably talk for over an hour, right? He's like, how about this? And we, we talk about this. How about that? And we talk about this, right? And we're hearing each other out. And, like, by the end, we actually, you know, one of the guys is like, I've got an extra copy of C.S. Lewis, you know, Mere Christianity. Will you take it? He's like... Sure, you know, he takes it. And so we, we go through all the different arguments and everything. Very good, very respectful conversation. And by the end, like when we make all these points, he essentially reluctantly agrees with us. And you know what he says at the end? He said, yeah, I, I understand, I understand. But I just want to live my life. I just want to live my life. You see, he was convinced. He was convinced, but he said, I just love my sin. I don't want to change my life. I don't want to change my habits. I don't want to change the things I do. I love it too much. Church, evangelism, it's, we're not changing people. We are pointing to Christ. Come and see. We're telling them about Christ, and then it is between them and Christ. Obviously, we need to be respectful. We need to be kind. We need to be loving, gentle, all of those things. We're not supposed to be offensive for the sake of being offensive. The gospel is offensive enough without our offensive tone of voice, right? Present the gospel, and it's between them and God at that point. Do not be discouraged. We are not the ones that change people. Jesus is the one that changes people. So, changes people. So, that being said, that's unbelief. We looked at the reason for it, and now we're going to see one of the results of unbelief, and that is wrath. John 3:36 says, "Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, 
But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, our sin, it doesn't just hurt us. It also hurts other people. It creates suffering in this world for other human beings, and we know that. No one's going to argue with that. But more importantly, our sin is also committed against God. God, the one who has done us only good from our very first breath and every single day that we have ever lived, God has shown us only good. God is more innocent than a newborn infant. You look at a newborn baby, right? They're, they're so innocent. God is more innocent than a newborn baby. Newborns are innocent because they're incapable completely, but they are still selfish in the core. God is innocent in the core, not because he's incapable. He's capable of all things. God has never had any evil intentions towards anyone. Our sin is a betrayal against him. Imagine having a friend. This friend does not exist, but imagine having a friend that always does good for you, just all the time, no matter what. They're always there to pick up your phone calls, always there to support you, always there to, you know, if you have a problem, drop everything they're doing, drive straight to you, help you out, save you, you know, always sharing with you, always backing you up in front of other people while you aren't there, always just giving you free stuff, just the perfect best friend, right? And now imagine one day you're in a crowd, your friend isn't there, and the crowd starts to say something bad about your friend. You feel uneasy, but you really want to fit in with these people, right? Like, hey, how about you? You know, say something. And you're just like, well, you know. And the fact that you didn't even defend your friend, right? Let's just say you said something just small, but still evil about this friend. Church, that's horrible. That is betrayal right? Because of the amount of good that your friend has done for you. It's wicked. And yet God has done infinitely more good for each and every single one of us than any humanly best friend could ever do, ever. You see, church, if we could see our sin the way God sees it, we would be disgusted and we would be horrified. I believe that. Our sin rightly deserves the wrath of God. And that's why Jesus says that. And God's wrath is on everyone who has not found forgiveness. This is the truth. And the only way to find forgiveness for our disgusting, backstabbing, horrifying sin is by having faith in Christ, by trusting Jesus that the cross has paid for all of my sins, that Jesus has drank the full cup of God's wrath on my behalf that I deserved. It's the only way we can be saved. And you can delay coming to Jesus so that you can be with your sin a little more, you know, just a little more. But God's wrath remains on you. And Hebrews 10.31 says it is a terrifying thing 
It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Imagine your doctor tells you you have cancer. You need to start treatment immediately. You say, well, I know how this whole chemo thing works. It's going to be bad. I'm going to lose my appetite. I'm going I'm to enjoy my life a little more. And then as soon as I'm enjoy, I enjoy it enough, I'm going to start chemo right away. We understand that's absurd. Because the longer we wait, the more the cancer takes over. The more worse the cancer becomes. And think about it spiritually. If you are so in love with your sin right now, if you're so twisted in your mind and your heart that you are not responding to God's grace and kindness to you right now, what makes you think you're not going to be in an even worse place as sin continues to corrupt your heart? What makes you think that your heart will not be even more hardened against God and more in love with this world after you continue indulging in your sin over and over again, thinking that one day you're going to just have enough and you're going to say, okay, Jesus, start the chemo. It doesn't work like that. Our sin is destruction. It's a cancer. It twists us and makes things worse every single day, hardening our heart. So the call is, come to Christ. Trust in him. Forget all that stuff. Leave it behind. He'll give you something better, and we're going to talk about that in a second. Come to Jesus. Trust him. He'll figure it out. You don't have the answers, but he does. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that? Now, the second part, belief. Eternal life. That is the result of belief, and we see that here. Life is the most precious thing that we have, is it not? Without it, we can't enjoy all the other great things in life. No friends, no family, no food, nothing. You can't even have a life purpose without life, right? There is no purpose without life. There's nothing. And Jesus promises that if we believe in the Son, we have eternal life. John 3:36. And the opposite is true. Whoever does not believe, whoever does not obey the Son, shall not see life. You know, an important thing to note here. When Jesus uses the word life, when John talks about life, he's not talking about mere existence, like, oh, do we have a pulse? He's not talking about being just awake and conscious. When it's talking about life, it's contrasting it with what? The wrath of God. You need to exist. You need a pulse to experience the wrath of God. So it's not the pulse we're talking about here. When we believe in Jesus, God's wrath is no longer upon us. Instead, we have God's pleasure, God's joy in us because we are in Christ now. God's blessing, God's grace, God's peace and rest is now upon us. And we have a promise from God that one day he will get rid of sin 
permanently and all of its effects. Revelation 22, verse 3, God says, no longer will there be anything accursed. It's talking about heaven, the new Jerusalem, the place that we're going to be very, very soon. That's not far away. That's close. We will live in eternity, in the presence of our Savior, of our Jesus, enjoying him and his uncorrupted creation. We will no longer experience the effects of sin, like pain and sickness and disappointment and separation and loneliness and fear, sadness, depression, even boredom. We will not experience. But we will live in perfect union with Jesus, the one who has created happiness in all the different ways to make us happy. That's the place God's calling us to. Friend, don't wait any longer to restore your relationship with God. God is offering you eternal life full of real joy. Not like this world, which is constantly giving us false hopes and false expectations. You know how we know, we, we know that? Well, we experience it. But we also have sayings like, the grass is always greener on the other side, right? Because we think, oh, I'm going to get to this side, and the grass is going to be so green, I'll be finally satisfied. We don't say it that way, but we feel it that way. And then we get to that side, and oh, Maybe it's greener back where I came from, right? <laughs> and we go back to the other side. And we're constantly just running around like little sheep, you know, looking for the greener grass, never finding it. But church, God will never disappoint. God, believe in the Son of God and obey him. And lastly, another result of, of belief, which John highlights here, is living water. As he's speaking to this Samaritan woman, he says in John 4, 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But everyone who drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him, in him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Church, we've talked about this before, but believing in Jesus is more than just holding a certain set of facts in our head, you know, like, oh, yeah, I can memorize it, I can say it back. Here, Jesus describes believing in him as drinking water which will satisfy our souls. That's the way he describes that. That's way beyond simply knowing facts. Jesus uses regular water as an analogy for life apart from him. Yes, in life, without Jesus, we can drink water, but Jesus says we will soon be thirsty again. And such a good analogy of never being truly satisfied, right? Even right now, I'm just like preaching, I'm like, I want my water bottle, right? <laughs> We're thirsty all the time. And it doesn't matter how old somebody is, right? You're not like, well, you're... You're past 90. You drank a lot of water in your life, right? Share with others, right? That should be enough. No. If you're alive, you need water. We're always getting thirsty, no matter how much water we drank before. 
No matter what kind of experiences we've had, no matter what kind of possessions we've acquired, achievements we've made, we will always end up being thirsty again. Always. That's the truth that Jesus is proclaiming here. We can spend our entire life trying to fill up this hole in my soul, and it will never be enough. Yes, it will temporarily satisfy me as I'm drinking it down, but it will only make us more thirsty in the end. The only way, the way of true satisfaction, the way to be never thirsty again, church, is through Jesus Christ. Only he can give us that peace, that joy, Only he can fill the void in our hearts. Only he can satisfy the longing of our souls. No matter who you are, he can satisfy you. Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus fulfills the restless longing of our souls. He does. Not, in this, not that we're going to be perfect in this life and now we're content and we don't need anything and there's no more temptations. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he's saying that on the deepest and the most fundamental level, Jesus satisfies us unlike anything else in this world. He hits a way that nothing else can hit. Jesus says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In fact, the reason we will be never thirsty again is not because we won't want to drink ever again, but because we will have within ourselves a source of eternal and living water. That's why we will never thirst, because that source will live in us. In John 7, verse 37, just three chapters down, Jesus cries out. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. Jesus gives us the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, the life and the breath of God himself who now lives in us. Friends, come to Christ. Drink of his water. Believe in him and he will satisfy you. And you don't have to thirst anymore. As I call the band up, It's very likely that as Jesus was teaching about water, right, and being thirsty, he was thinking about, we we know he knew the Old Testament very well because he's the one that wrote it. (laughs) Jeremiah 2, verse 13. God is speaking in Jeremiah 2, and he is rebuking the people of God, Israel, and he says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and two, hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two evils. The first one is that they have forsaken the God who is the fountain of living waters. We as sinful people have all left God. God is the source of living waters, the only one that can truly satisfy each and every single one of our souls 
And we, we have forsaken him. We think that we can find satisfaction somewhere other than in only God himself. We must repent of that evil, having left him. Church, it's a lie. There is nothing that can truly satisfy us. No dream, no accomplishment, no experience, no trip, vacation, status, position. Nothing can satisfy us the way the spring of eternal life can. And the second evil is that not only did they forsake the spring, God, they have built cisterns that can't hold water. A cistern is an underground huge container that holds water. And he says, not only have you left, but you thought you could do it on your own. You thought you could build your own little life here to capture the water falling from heavens and you're self-sufficient. I don't need to go to that spring anymore. I got my own source of water. I'm smart. I'm, I built a life for myself. And God says, you think it's holding water, but it's broken. It's leaking, and it's going to keep leaking, and you're going to keep losing all that water. You can't build a life of happiness apart from me, the one who created you and your ability to even be happy. You can't, and it's an evil. And God sees that all these plans, they failed us. Church, this is a call for every single one of us. Whether you've never believed in Jesus or you've been walking with him for decades, come back to him. Drink of his water. Let him satisfy your soul. Drink deeply of his pure spirit instead of the filthy mud that this world offers. You want practical application? Ask yourself, what have I been trying to satisfy the longings of my soul with instead of Jesus and his Holy Spirit. Could be good things that God gave you himself. But good things become bad things when they become God things, right? Do you actually believe, do I actually believe that Jesus is able to not just save me one day from hell, but that he can satisfy me today, my soul, my deepest cravings right now. Do I really believe that? Or is it just, oh, one day God will save me? Do we believe that he can satisfy us more today, right now, more than all the millions of easy forms of entertainment that this world is constantly offering us? Church, the truth is he can and he will. Let's stand. Let's pray. Give you a minute to just ponder upon the soul-satisfying nature of Jesus. Bring your sin into his light. Let him heal you and walk with him. Lord Jesus, forgive me me for trying to find a source of water apart from you 
trying to build my own cisterns, thinking I can do it on my own. I can be happy, independent from you. Lord, forgive me. And I pray that you would help all of us come to you every day, every, every day, Lord. As we come and drink water physically, we'd remember that you are the water of eternal life and that we would come to you to be satisfied in you. Satisfy our thirsty souls, Lord, we pray all this in the precious name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.